Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet a Canadian scientist who's helped put a new face on history's most famous pharaoh. Find out how modern technology and a lot of hard work helped give us a much better idea of what King Tut really looked like. We speak to a road safety expert about why storms cause such havoc on our roads after a big dump of late November snow turned roads in and around Vancouver into parking lots on Tuesday. Are poorly prepared drivers to blame? Could more be done to prepare? We meet an Alberta mom who's just written a book called Missing From Me, documenting the sudden disappearance of her 20-year-old son from a ski resort near Kamloops, BC, nearly five years ago, and how she and her family coped with that sudden loss while continuing a long search for answers, a search that continues to this day. But first, a new global news report finds that federal officials are well aware that current protections in place don't do enough to stop foreign influence in our domestic politics. Could a foreign influence registry be part of the answer? We speak to someone who's been advocating for one for quite a long time now. First up this evening, new reporting from Global News finds that Canadian officials have known for years that the country's existing laws did not cover foreign government's interference or did not do enough to stop foreign government's interfering in our domestic politics. Uh, Canadian intelligence officials and Parliament's National Security Committee have cautioned for years that foreign, foreign governments, and we know which ones they are, notably China, Russia, Iran, are actively working on Canadian soil to influence Canadian affairs. Now, some of this is overt, others is in the shadows. The Prime Minister last week spoke of the information he's given about these kinds of threats. In question period, Justin Trudeau said his government has known for years about consistent engagements by the Chinese government or representatives in this country, including reports of illicit Chinese police stations. I am regularly briefed by intelligence officials and uh, security experts uh, on threats to Canada and to Canadians, whether it be uh, cyber threats, whether it be uh, interference with Canadian diaspora communities, uh, whether it be use of uh, online misinformation or disinformation. That is the Prime Minister speaking in question period last week. Well, this all comes as Canada's public safety minister uh, said the government was looking for ways to beef up its defence against foreign influence in our domestic affairs. Um, Ottawa hasn't been quick to use new powers. One of them is a registry of people engaged by foreign powers to try and influence Canadian policy, uh, a so-called foreign registry or foreign agent registry, really. Other countries have them, such as the UK and the US and Australia. Uh, But reports today suggest the government may be considering this as an option. And former CSIS head Richard Fadden thinks that's a good idea. You have an agent of the Chinese state in one shape, form, or another uh, who's registered doing this sort of thing. You have an instantaneous reason for asking them to desist and possibly prosecuting them. One person who's been pushing for this for a long time, a foreign influence registry, is Quebec Senator Leo Housakos, and he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure to be with you. So I gather this report won't come as much of a surprise, but yet more evidence that... um, there is foreign, at least attempts at foreign influence in our domestic politics, and uh, the federal government struggles to figure out how to stop it. Look, we've been dealing with this issue for many, many years. Uh, there's a number of nations that are uh, acting in very egregiously around the world, and now we're finding that they're acting egregiously right here on Canadian soil. In many instances, we have cases from, in regards to the regime from Beijing, uh, Iran, Russia, it's nice to see that Prime Minister Trudeau finally is waking up. Once that 
the media stories are starting to, to leak out of information, concrete information of foreign influence. It seems like that's the only time he gets interested in doing things. I mean, they've been versed. Uh, clearly, they're aware of the issue. I think they've been, you know, there's been enough CSIS reports. There have been enough reports from uh, from Global Affairs Canada warning about this stuff over the years. Why do you think, I mean, other than media reports, do you think there is a recognition now that it's getting more acute or that it's getting more invasive than it used to be? No, I'll be honest. I think this government is only interested in headlines. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had Many, many cases where intelligence uh, services have come to parliamentary committees, security conferences, they've been raising these red flags in regards to foreign interference in our uh, governments, in our institutions for many years. We've seen our allies like Australia, the United States, the UK tightening up their legislation and taking concrete action to push back against foreign influence. So this is not a surprise. And now we've heard through media stories, thank God, on a number of occasions of tangible instances of interference. We've heard, of course, media stories where the prime minister, there's been leaks that the prime minister was briefed clearly about interference in our last federal election. He denies at the beginning, he sort of says there was no evidence of any tangible interference. Then he denies even being briefed. We really haven't figured out where exactly things things are going. I think one of the elements that broke the straw in this particular issue is the charges that were laid against the Hydro-Quebec official just a couple of weeks ago, uh, accusing him of essentially espionage and working on behalf of the Beijing regime and leaking out information from Hydro-Quebec. And I think that's just the first of many instances of other charges that are probably going to be around the corner. Certainly the police stations uh, report to out of Spain, out of the human rights group in Spain, about uh, the existence potentially of, of what would be illegal police stations. Chinese run uh, in this country was probably another one of those alarm bells. Too. It feels like we've heard a lot of things happen in a very short period of time. Well, absolutely. We all remember right at the beginning of COVID, those two scientists in our Winnipeg virus lab that were escorted out by the RCMP. We're still waiting to find out what information and what was compromised uh, at the benefit of Beijing at the expense of our government and our nation. We remember all too well of just not too long ago when the Parliament of Canada moved forward a motion recognizing what's going on to the Uyghur people in China as a genocide where the Chinese ambassador publicly threatened parliamentarians, and there was no repercussions for it. Instead of the prime minister calling in the ambassador from Beijing and being firm with him or even asking him to even expelling him for a brief time or withdrawing our ambassador from Beijing as a strong sign of you know, willingness on the government not to accept pressure of this nature, inappropriate pressure from a foreign government, there was silence from our government. So right. there's been many instances where every at every turn where we've seen egregious behavior from Beijing, Prime Minister Trudeau just kowtows. Of course, I mean, I, I was in China when Stephen Harper was prime minister. And I have to tell you, he wasn't any, any more. He didn't stand up any taller than than Justin Trudeau has back in the day. Uh, I mean, at, no, the begin- at, the be- at the beginning, you did. But I think we're really waking up to this, which has been interesting. Tell me about the foreign influence registry, because what I think listeners might not understand right now is what is allowed to happen that we don't know about. Anything can happen that we don't know about. We do not know when, for example, parliamentarians accept 
certain gifts or when they're actually even just simply approached by organizations asking parliamentarians to influence certain pieces of legislation or government regulation or government policy. Different organizations on behalf of different foreign entities that come and try to influence senior bureaucrats in crafting legislation or regulation or applying or not applying certain legislation or regulations, et cetera, et cetera. We have in this country a lobbying registry. So any any given moment in time that a corporation comes and lobbies the federal government on a policy, on an issue, on a contract, they register. It's a transparent, accountable way of doing business. But when it comes to foreign entities, foreign governments, or agents of foreign governments that are on our shore doing similar activity in a, in a number of avenues, we have no clue. We're in the dark about it. And a lobbying registry, the lobbying registry doesn't cover it, obviously, because it goes beyond, I'm thinking of Huawei or so on, but it goes beyond business, right? Exactly. And Huawei, it'll cover Huawei when they lobby for a federal government contract, for example, but it won't cover when they're lobbying and trying to influence sometimes a sub-entity of an entity, and that's where it gets complicated. Look, I'll just give you a very simple example. Over the last few years, there's dozens of instances of cases in the United States, Australia, of individuals on behalf of Beijing or other foreign entities that have been charged and indicted for trying to influence their government, their institutions. You know how many cases of, of a similar nature we've had in Canada over the last few years? I think I can guess, yeah. Exactly. Zero. The first case of charges being laid were those charges a couple of weeks ago against this individual uh, at Hydro-Quebec. But we all know what happened to Nortel, a flagship corporation in this country. For example, it's common knowledge. We talk about it uh, you know, behind the scenes. We, we make uh, references to it, but we've never taken any action to make sure it's not happening as we speak. So you've been pushing for this for a while. You have a private member's bill, I believe, that was uh, that came out almost well. It's about eight months ago now, back in the spring. Um, what has been the response? Have you seen any movement at all towards towards actually adopting this as an idea? The bill was uh, was tabled back in February, so it's it's almost a year. You're absolutely right. It's it's really a, a knockoff of what I call the Kenny Chu uh, right, bill, of course. Uh, of course, Conservative Member of Parliament in the previous Parliament that tabled a s- almost identical piece of legislation, which, of course, did not go very far. We weren't able to get it through at the time. Many claim and will believe that some of the interference and the alleged interference on the part of Beijing in the last federal election to defeat candidates at Kenny Chu was because of his bill that he put forward. But one of the good news of being in the Senate is I don't run for re-election, and I guess that gives me an opportunity not to worry about that so I can put forward a bill on principle and, and hope that the government will embrace it because it's the right thing to do. The bill was put forward with the same objective. It's been lingering in the Senate for 10 months now. There hasn't been a single Trudeau-appointed senator that has spoken to the bill there's been a tactic here to just keep it on ice, and, and it hasn't moved at all. So today, what we've heard from Minister Mendicino is, is typical of the Trudeau government. There's a problem. But instead of taking action, which we all know has been years in coming, they're talking about thinking about it and consulting about it, again, which might take many, many more years. And how much more compromise can we become during that process in that period of time? 
Yeah, I suspect, Senator Husakos, that if and when we see a registry, it certainly won't be attributed to you or Kenny Chu. But it, uh, it, it, and, it, and what form and what form of a registry will it take? Right. Yeah. What form would you like to see? I mean, ultimately, what would you like to see done? This would be um, I know there are some complexities around that sort of registry. Australia's bumped into a few problems. It's been successful. It's also had a few stumbles here and there. But, you know, concerns about it overreaching a little bit. Uh, but what would you like to see ultimately in terms of a foreign influence registry in this country? I'd like the government to look at the examples in Australia, look at the examples in the United States and come up and put something into place very quickly. This isn't about me or my bill or Kenny Chu's previous bill. This is about doing what needs to be done to protect our parliaments, our nation, our institutions. The time for talk is over. And the objective here with a registry is not only to respond to the egregious behavior of Beijing, but there's countries like Iran, there's Hezbollah, there's Hamas that are also on our shores, that are influencing academic institutions, are influencing organizations, they're influencing Canadians of ethnic background who might be coming from these homelands where they intimidate them right here in Canada in an advancement of their own political agenda. Russia we see what they're doing right now in the Ukraine and how they use regimes like they're doing in Cuba in order to propagate their propaganda and other allies around the world. And all of these countries I've just mentioned, they're active on Canadian soil, using and intimidating Canadians. And that has to stop. The objective of this bill is to stop the intimidation towards Canadians, stop the nefarious behavior in trying to infiltrate our academic, economic, and political institutions, attach some penalties to those individuals and organizations that engage in this behavior under the criminal code. So that way the tools are available to our intelligence forces and our security forces to put an end to this. Yeah, I noticed it wasn't in the Indo-Pacific strategy, which I think was a bit of a surprise. Absolutely. And when it's all said and done, we in Canada have given access to particularly a nation like China to our capable middle class economy and marketplace where they have benefited for decades. But we haven't attached that unfettered access with a demand that they align themselves with our standards, environmental standards, labor standards, standards on human rights and freedoms and democracy. And you're absolutely right when you said at the beginning of the program, this hasn't been a one-off only with this government. Successive governments over the last three decades have not stood up to China to make it clear if you want to do business with Canada, there's certain basic values that are never going to be compromised or traded, irregardless for in return how much trade we get. And that should be labor, environment, human rights. Why would we accept those products that are a byproduct of contravening all these standards when we, don't accept, we wouldn't accept it here in our own nation? Senator Husakos, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Well, this is a fascinating story. I don't know if um, you're a big fan of Egyptology. I spent some time in Egypt working. I've been to the to the Great Pyramid at Giza. I even went inside the Great Pyramid at Giza, actually. I was there for work uh, during, uh, well, it was, it was actually during the Libyan War, so it wasn't really about Egyptology, but we got to stay in Cairo for a while, so took advantage of seeing some of those things. They really are absolutely spectacular. When you see the Nile or you see the pyramids or the Sphinx, it really is, I mean, these are things you've read about all your life, right? So it really is pretty, pretty majestic. Um, but back here in Canada, Canada, there is a guy at Western University, a bioarchaeologist who's known as the mummy guy, for good reason, as you'll find out. He's part of a three-person team um, that has gone to put a new face, worked on putting a new face on ancient history. You know, it was 100 years ago this year 
that King Tut's grave was first investigated, first found. Uh, and Andrew Nelson at Western uh, has been working with human, with remains at archaeological sites for, for a long time. And his work has helped put a new face on King Tut, the boy king. It's all for a documentary that explores, a PBS documentary that really looks back at, at uh, the pharaoh's life and death. Um, here is Andrew Nelson explaining a little bit about his work. I've worked with a lot of mummies, but there's only one King Tut. The goal of the production is is to actually tell Tut's story as a person. The best way to know about people of the past is to actually look at mummies and skeletons and things. And so here we've got the actual mummy of Tut. The, the task that I was given then was to work with the scan, to segment the skull out from the scan so that we could get a 3D print, and then to work with Christian on the actual facial reconstruction. So the program that, that I use here is called Dragonfly. It's a very, very powerful tool to take a CT scan and to really look what's inside something that creates the model that we use for the 3D print. For me to be able to have King Tut here on my computer and to be working to, to be part of this process of reconstructing the face was an amazing experience. It is an absolutely amazing story. Imagine being tasked and being given access to the remains to allow modern technology to put a truer face on perhaps the most famous of pharaohs, King Tut, the boy king who died at 19, all to commemorate, commemorate the 100th anniversary uh, since the revealing of his tomb, really. And Andrew Nelson bioarchaeologist, professor and chair of anthropology at Western University, joins us now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for the invitation. This must have been such uh, an amazing offer in, in your shoes to be given the opportunity to try to use Tut's skull and, and recreate an image, sort of help tell his story. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, so it was, it was my colleague Sahar who uh, who first emailed me about about the project and said, "Are you interested in being part of this?" And I said, "Are you kidding?" Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's there's a Western connection there too, is there not? Yeah. So so Sahar did her uh, radiology residency here. It just so happened to be that was right at the same moment as I had borrowed some mummies from the Royal Ontario Museum, and literally the first day she was here was the day we were scanning the mummies. And so she walked into the CT suite and, and, and there was a mummy. And so, so we've just kept in touch ever since she went back to Egypt after her residency. She's a, you know, a very accomplished radiologist, but she's also the, the, the ra clinical radiologist, but she's also the, the radiologist to the royal mummies now. A friend in a high place, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So to speak. Um, your interest in mummies goes way back, too. And it's and it's quite a, a great story because I think your interest in mummies is, is the same interest that so many of us have had in Egyptology in general, which is we saw it in a museum. Yeah. So so actually, I, I moved here to, to Western in the fall of 94. And um, a few years later, there was an article in the London Free Press that came out on, on a mummy from Chatham, which is just about an hour west of here. And uh, she had been sent up to Ottawa and come back for, for some work from the Canadian Conservation Institute. Just I cut out the article, I stuck it to my pinboard on the wall, and I thought, yeah, you know, one of these days I'd really like to go see that. <laughs> and and then uh, a couple of years later, a couple friends of mine, Jerry Conlog and, and Ron Beckett, worked out a deal with National Geographic to to do a 13 episode season called The Mummy Roadshow, 
And so they called me up and they said, hey, Andrew, you got a mummy. And I said, well, I don't, but I know where one is. <laughs> and so literally, I, you know, I, I sort of I emailed Chatham and then went out to see them and tried, you know, built up a little bit of a relationship with them. And so we we filmed actually the first episode of that season out out there at Chatham with, with their mummy. And then I got a chance later to, to CT scan that mummy. And it all just kind of took off from there. Yeah, the rest is uh, is ancient history, so to speak. Um, which, what is remarkable? I mean, I think Tut, although I gather not the most certainly far from the most important of pharaohs, because of the discovery of his tomb intact, has become sort of the rock star of that world. So the opportunity—it's been a hundred years now, right? This was what this whole project was about: was trying to right. tell a different story about Tut a hundred years later. Right. right. So it, I mean, it, it it all depends on how you define important. Right. But, right. uh, you know, in terms of political power, he, he wasn't all that important. But in terms of of telling us about ancient Egypt and, and capturing people's imaginations, he's super important. And, and you know, that that's that's why we're here. That's why we're having this conversation. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> he, I mean, he's certainly the most recognizable name in Egyptian history, absolutely. I think, around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely. Tell me a bit about the impact of then of that discovery. Then a hundred years later, we were. What would be the? What's left? What questions have been answered in a hundred years, and what mysteries remain? Oh wow! Well, I mean, I guess there's a lot of them. Yeah, that's, that's a loaded yeah, question. Where yeah. to start? <laughs> I, I think sort of figuring out the relationships within among the royal. Mummies. I think that's one of the key relationships, and that was one of the things that that was really highlighted in that in that uh, that PBS episode was that, that you know they didn't they didn't uh, silver coat the idea that different people have different ideas, right? Right. And uh, you know, particularly who who is Tut's mother and 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 what killed Tut, right? And and so there were real differences of opinion in terms of those. But it's it's also you know just getting a better understanding of of, of Egyptian life and death in general. And one of the things that I really like to focus on when I'm studying Egyptian mummies is people have this sort of caricature in their mind of the the Herodotus description of, you know, remove the brain through the nose, took all the organs out, left the heart. And and it turns out there's a lot of variability and, and that description only fits for some. And and so the work that I've been doing with Egyptian mummies has been trying to better understand what's underlying that variability and and to sort of map it out. Is this a regional variability? Is this temporal variability? And and to me, that that's one of the most interesting questions for me. Really? So mummification was not um, a uniform process? No, absolutely not. No, I mean, but, but you know, if you just Google how did the ancient Egyptian mummify their dead, you know, you'll get this pat description. But it turns out it's 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 a lot more complicated, and I think a lot more interesting. Yes, uh, tell me a bit about the importance of trying to do the imaging as you did it. What what that added to the story a hundred years later? Well, so so the, the the key thing underlying the use of either X rays or CTs on mummies is non destructive. A lot of Back certainly in the 1800s, early 1900s, the way you studied mummies was you unwrapped them. So you you lose the context of any artifacts that are with the mummy. You you still, depending on how enthusiastic the mummy unrollers were, you you may still have the the, the corpse itself. But often then they they autopsied those as well, and and you've just got a sort of a pile of bits. So from my perspective, the most important thing about X-ray and CT is is the fact that it's non-destructive, and you and you keep the mummy itself as as what i call a microcosm 
and I actually I have a field project in Peru, and and we do this. We X-ray and we CT scan. They are much more bundles. There's the individuals inside in the seated flexed position. My project there is called Mummies as Microcosms. And it's so you're looking at the artifacts, you're looking at the individual, you're looking at the biology and the culture all sort of wrapped up together. So modern technology has really given us a whole new look into this ancient world. It, it's huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The challenges then, because you were given access to Tut, I mean, literally access to Tut. Uh, where do you start when it comes to trying to recreate what uh, the boy king may have looked like? So my task was to do what's called segmentation. So I, I take the CT scan and you can see different things have different densities in the CT scan. So bone has, has, is quite dense. Resin and linen packing in the cheeks is a little bit less dense. And then, you know, some residual skin has, has a particular density. And so what I was trying to do was segment those into different, what are called regions of interest. So I was trying to create a model that had only the bone. And, and so the challenge with that was that his Balmers used a lot of resin with him. Right. And, and so that made it actually extremely difficult to separate the resin from the bone. And uh, the software I use, it's called Dragonfly. It, it actually has a deep learning capability that I was able to exploit. And so I trained it on, on a number of slices. And then I, I said, Go for it, <laughs> and and so I, I you know I left it running overnight on the computer literally, and came back the next day, and then I still had about fifteen fifteen twenty hours of of sort of cleaning cleaning up to do. I guess the the resin would really sh change the shape of the face, right? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so they they, they packed the cheeks in particular, and and to to try and maintain the shape of the face, but you know it's as, as it shrinks and desiccates, it it changes the shape of the face, and so I had to get that stuff off of the skull in order to to actually be able to create the virtual model of the skull. And then once I had that virtual model, then I went and I took that and we did a 3D print. And so then we had from the virtual, we then had a physical model of the skull. And that's what Christian, the artist, had to work from. Andrew Nelson is with us. He's a professor and chair of anthropology at Western University. We're talking about a project that he's just been involved in, uh, part of a two-part PBS series called King Tut Allies and Enemies to mark 100 years since the opening of the boy king's tomb. And uh, Andrew Nelson, a bioarchaeologist, has set about, was given the, the very enviable task of recreating what King Tut would have looked like. Uh, I mean, he died very young, 19. Um, how he died exactly remains something of a mystery. What he looked like may be something less of a mystery now. So you've recreated the, the skull. Uh, an artist then takes over and does work on it. What, uh, what, did, what did you come up with and how different was it from what you expected? So it was, it was quite, quite different from, from what we expected. A lot of the other reconstructions really emphasize the fact that oh maybe he had club foot and you know maybe he was lame and and so they they're the, the most recent one in particular really emphasizes his sickly look and then there were some reconstructions before one was on a computer that that ends up with a very very sort of wooden look and so so we worked with with so the, so the first thing in order to do the facial reconstruction is you have to put little markers on the skull that tell you how how thick to build out to on the skin and those vary quite a bit from population to population. And we found the data set for modern Egyptian populations. Now, obviously, 
that's not going to be perfect for ancient Egyptian populations, but it's certainly better than a, a, a sample of, of American whites or American blacks. That was one of the things that was a bit different, but what we did with what other people had done. And so then you build it muscle by muscle. You actually work, you know, reverse engineer the anatomy, essentially, to, to, to build things up to those markers. And one of the things it did was actually his, his, his back teeth are behind right. his front teeth. Yeah. Um, that didn't look all that extreme. The other thing that we, we, we decided that, that we would make him one of his crowns. Right. And so we, we picked the Capresh, which is his battle crown. And so it's, it's this sort of weirdly shaped oblong thing that goes on his head. And, and it's, it's illustrated in blue in, in, in paintings of him. And it's got the cobra up at the front. And he does have a slightly oddly shaped skull. There's, you know, it's, it's got a little bit of a sort of an indentation along here, but with the compression on that, that goes away. And so, so you end up with a much more, a much more human looking face than, than either the sickly look or the real overbite look or the funny shaped head look. And, and, and then you, so you start to just think about him just as, as a pharaoh. Yeah, or or you might recognize him if you saw him on the street, kind of, which is right. uh, which is so different from before, from the, some of the other representations. Yeah, yeah. So so it's facial reconstruction. It's often called face, facial approximation, mm-hmm. um, and and absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to claim that that's a perfect reproduction of what Tut would have looked like, but the idea is what just what you just said is is that somebody who knew him would would probably look at that and go, "Oh yeah, I recognize that." Yeah, there's Tut. Um, yeah. The value of this, I guess, and, and this is just part of the one, the century, uh, a century after the the opening of the tomb, is that it, it adds another layer to what we understood about this most famous of Egyptian pharaohs. Yeah. So, so when I analyze a skeleton or a mummy, what I'm trying to do is tell their what we call the osteobiography. It's what was their life like as told through their bones, and the idea is to make make that into a person. Right to, to to this was a man. This was a woman. They were twenty years old, forty years old. They had you know they had had some abscesses with their teeth and maybe broke a bone, something like that. So we 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 can understand that person as they lived. And so doing the facial reconstruction is sort of the ultimate step in that. And that that all of a sudden now you're not anymore looking at a, a skull with you know the empty orbits. You're actually looking at a face, and it becomes a much more a much more easy thing. To, to identify with that person and to think about what was their life like, you know, how was, how were they interacting with other people, that sort of stuff. And, and certainly with the show, I mean, they, the, the, the climax is, is when, when the one host unveils the, the, the reconstruction, the other one goes, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a great moment for you though, as well. I, oh, it was great. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, it, it's hard to top that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I actually I I didn't know how much our work was incorporated into the into the show, and I knew they were emphasizing the work of the Egyptians, and 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 fair enough. But uh, but it was it was really nice to see that sort of climax. Not bad for a story that started in Chatham. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew Nelson, thank you so much for your time tonight. Fascinating stuff. My pleasure. <laughs> Well, there were a lot of nervous drivers looking at the weather forecasts around uh, the Vancouver area today in the Lower Mainland uh, because there was more snow in the forecast tonight. Now, it hasn't snowed as far as I know, 
I'm not in Vancouver, I'm in Victoria, but I have a reliable source, Talia Miller, who just looked out the window to tell me that at the CKNW studios, at least in downtown Vancouver, it is not snowing tonight, uh, at least not yet. And it certainly didn't happen during the afternoon commute. Now, many there are still recovering from the shock of a pretty heavy snowfall on Tuesday that caused no end of commuter chaos. Uh, drivers are demanding answers to know why snow clearing was slow and roads turned into parking lots, trapping people for hours on end. Watch out! Oh my God. There we go. And another one. One more time. Stop! Watch out! Get out of, the, out of your car! In your car! Watch out! Uh-oh, here comes another one. Oh! Nice BMW. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, get out of the way! What the? Yeah, that'll give you an idea of what was going on. It was, it was, yeah, not a lot of snow tires, so on and so forth. Um, well, those managing the response say that unprepared drivers trying to get out of town as a huge amount of snow fell quickly was probably the real cause of all that chaos. Well, joining me now is Raheem Delgir. He's president of TransSafe Consulting and president of the Canadian Association of Road Safety Professionals. Um, and he's here to help us out a bit with this in a more general way. We won't talk too much about snow clearing itself. But tell me about your Thursday or your Tuesday, rather. Did you did you run into any of that snow? <laughs> Thanks, Ben, for having me. Uh, you know what? I was one of the lucky ones uh, working from home, so I was spared the uh, the immediate chaos. I was looking out my window, though, and I, I'm near a major intersection, so I was seeing a lot of it. And, you know, people um, having trouble getting up the hills, and those, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things, of course, that happen uh, when you have a slippery surface. Now, given your background, given what you do, you must look at that with a slightly different eye and try to figure out what exactly is happening, how these, what are generally, I mean, what are generally fairly safe roads all of a sudden turn into these, you know, to these scenes of chaos and parking lots and so forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's remarkable how the situation completely changes when the weather changes. And, you know, just from looking at the statistics, um, you know, some studies say that one out of every four fatal collisions occurs during adverse conditions, whether that's you know, slippery uh, road surface conditions or poor visibility. So weather does play uh, a major role. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it happens almost every year. Um, and, of course, it happens every year in a lot of parts of Canada. But here in Vancouver, not necessarily every year, but even when it does happen, you know, every season, it's, it's hard to adjust from the rest of the year because driving is such a habitual task, right? And then uh, right. it's not until, even if you check the forecast and you hear, hear about, you know, the the need to prepare for conditions. Sometimes it's not until you're actually right in the thick of it that you realize, oh, you know, I should have uh, left earlier. I should, I should have, um, you know, checked my tires or whatever it might be that ended up, uh, you know, contributing to a, to a collision. So from your perspective, is that really the issue that we, because driving is so habitual, we don't even really recognize where the, where the threats may lie if there is a big snowstorm like that one? You know that 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 is a part of it. I, I mean, certainly there's a segment of the of the of, of of the of the population that does you know take take those uh, warnings uh, to heart and you know do the necessary preparation, whether that's winterizing your vehicle, you know, uh, planning your trip, leaving a bit earlier, um, you know, maybe even taking a different route that avoids some hills and and, and things like that. Um, but you know, for a lot of us, we are in the habit of driving the same route at the same time um, and simply not adjusting for the weather. 
And I guess it's a reminder of just how quickly I remember seeing a, an article once about how traffic lights are coordinated in Manhattan and that if one one car, if one intersection is blocked, the whole system can fall apart in a matter of in a matter of a few minutes. It's a reminder, I guess, here that just how quickly a few incidents can really clog the whole thing up. Yeah, I mean, even regardless of the signals, I mean, if you have somebody blocking a lane, that pretty much renders that lane pretty almost useless for several hundred kilometers back because you, then suddenly you have people queuing up behind it. And, of course, people are approaching the back of the queue at the, uh, you know, at the regular speeds. And that's why, you know, pileups happen so quickly in the snow. And, you know, the moment you lose control, you're, it could be, you know, 20 or 50 vehicles suddenly that are pushed and easily slide into the, the one in front of them. Is is part of the issue here too that um, I mean, cities sort of build their road infrastructure around what to expect. I gather. I mean, what is common, right? They don't build them for mm-hmm. what is uncommon. So you go to like I grew up in Montreal. Clearly, Montreal is pretty used to having a lot of snow, and uh, a lot of its roads, although some of them are old, but a lot of it's sort of built around that. It feels like Vancouver isn't. I mean, for many, many, many reasons, it feels like Vancouver isn't really built for snow infrastructure wise. Yeah, and you know, it, there's not uh, you know a large toolbox of what you can do to actually build for snow. It really does depend on um, you know the maintenance and clearance practices. And like you said at the at the outset, um, you know, clearing is is a big part of it. Uh, when you have such a big snowfall, and it's really for the whole region, it's obviously challenging for crews to keep up. But um, you know, there are some treatments that are um, you know have been uh, implemented with some success. Um, uh, you know, in preparation for for um, uh, for snowfalls, you know, the the crews do use um, different substances, whether it's you know salt or uh, sand or uh, liquid anti-icing uh, agents um, that are you know that hopefully you know keep that friction uh, on the road so that you know when the snow does fall, it's less likely to stick. But then more from kind of a I guess more of an infrastructure point of view, um, you know, like the design of the roads, it's really a couple of things. One is to limit the speeds that vehicles can go on on certain roadways or uphills or whatever, so that uh, or downhills, so that uh, you know when these types of situations do occur, then you're less likely to you know lose control and, and get involved in collisions. Then there are sort of spot treatments that uh, some. Um, some areas have tried, um, like higher friction surface on the approaches to curves or intersections, and I know those are in use in a number of locations in BC, but uh, perhaps they could be used uh, in more locations. But expensive, I guess, for a city that really doesn't get a whole lot of snow. I suppose generally, uh, as I was look- saying earlier, that cities sort of prepare what for what they for what is common and what is expected. So if you're yeah. in Edmonton, obviously you're preparing for a lot of very cold weather, and if you're in Montreal, you're preparing for or in Ottawa, you're preparing for a lot of snow. But in Vancouver, you're probably not, right? So it it shows. That, that's right. Yeah, you know, the, since it's it just happens so much less frequently uh, in Vancouver, it's harder to uh, not only to prepare and have all that you know it's expensive to have all that equipment that you may end up using only once a year uh, and by the same token it's more difficult for motorists to adjust simply because you're not used to you know like some some cities uh where you know the snow's on the ground for sometimes six months a year right like edmonton for example so it really yeah. is very different uh and you know uh you know i get uh 
you know friends or colleagues chuckling uh, you know at me in Vancouver for you know you know that that we hardly get any snow and yet we can't deal with it <laughs> but it, it really does speak to that you know again that behavioral need, you know the challenge of uh, adjusting as well as the crews uh, adjusting and being prepared uh, for conditions that don't happen too often yeah, but I mean, uh, but, I guess but, but, yeah. but that are happening more and more often with global warming. So I think we oh, all need right. to be become more and more um, aware, you know, with with uh, extreme weather events, and um, you know, maybe, maybe, and I'm sure that road authorities are looking at their at their crews and equipment, uh, given the, the you know the weather trends that are that are happening. So hopefully, over time, it'll be something that's easier to to deal with. Yeah, I mean, that, I was going to, I want to ask you about that in the, in the sense that uh, we're having to get used to at least more extreme weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and one would think that, uh, and you know, it doesn't happen often, but that when faced with extreme weather, the, the idea that you need to change your driving habits becomes all the more important, right? <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, there's uh, there's a few things that that we can uh, that we can we can do, and some of these may may sound relatively obvious, but they are you know quite important, and you know, studies have shown that they do make a significant impact. And one is simply by you know be, being aware, being more aware of um, you know what's what's. Uh, that the fact that when you, when you do have um, slippery surface conditions, you need to maintain larger distances between yourself and the and the vehicle in front of you. Uh, you need to go slower because um, if you were to brake at the same, you know, about the same distance that you have now that, that you do now, you you need more. Uh, either you need more space, or you need to do it at a slower speed to be able to stop to stop in time. Um, and then you know, preparing your vehicles, making sure that. Um, that you do have, uh, you know, winter or, you know, all-season tires that have good tread and, and traction and that your wipers are working properly so that, uh, you know, you don't have streaks and visibility limitations on your windshield. Um, so, there, you know, there's a number of other items which, um, you know, you can find on, you know, websites like BCAA or ICBC's website where that just really helps, you know, you to prepare um, uh, your vehicle as well as plan your, plan your trip Again, I guess so much of it is 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 human, though that, uh, that no matter how much you tell people to prepare, and I think mm-hmm. we saw this on Tuesday, uh, that when it actually happens, people seem to abs- to lose all uh, sense of of reasoning to some extent, right? That's what you kind of watch happen is this sort of mass panic that happens, or panic is probably the wrong word, but sort of this uh, this chaos that ensues. Yeah, and it, and it's and it's and it's at its peak that first time, right? The first time every season, it's just chaos and. You know, uh, it's it's kind of I don't know ironic that you know it's happening every year, but it happens every year anyway. Yeah. Uh, that chaos, um, and then you know, like like you were saying, if if there was snow today, I think people are a lot more prepared, or at least uh, behaviorally and mentally prepared for it than uh, than than on Tuesday, just because it already happened once. Yeah, the uh, the satirical magazine, the Beaverton, had an interesting uh, headline today that said, "City that hosted 2010 Winter Olympics struggles to cope with snow." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it feels like it was a failure on many levels, uh, not least of which was uh, a failure of drivers to prepare. Maybe it wasn't enough clearing done. We're not really talking about um, the, the operations or the mechanics of snow clearing or who was to blame, but we are talking about uh, road safety in general. And the fact is that during, uh, as Raheem was pointing out earlier, um, inclement weather tends to really ma- sort of up the danger on our roads. I mean, that makes sense, but you know, the numbers were pretty stark. Were you saying it was a quarter of all fatal accidents happened during... Uh, or was it forty percent? I'm sorry, I forgot the number, but it was yeah. high. 
Yeah, across the country, um, I believe it was in 2019 where uh, this information was, was uh, you know, that's the most recent uh, information available. Um, one out of every four um, right. fatal collisions involved uh, some type of inclement weather, whether it be the road surface or, or, or poor visibility. So for road safety professionals, uh, how do you tackle something like that? Because again, you're not dealing with the norm, right? You're dealing with with uh, with exceptional circumstances. Um, how do you deal with it? Yeah, no, a great question. Um, you know, uh, we've um, th- there's a new way of, of thinking that um, that has been increasingly adopted in more, uh, more recent years. And I don't know if you or your public have heard about Vision Zero, and that really is um, sort of a philosophy where um, f- f- fatalities and serious injuries on our roads are considered unacceptable. So it becomes a real priority in how we plan, design, and manage our whole transportation systems uh, to prevent uh, needless death and uh, an injury. You know, w- when it comes to the weather, it's something that's a little more challenging than maybe other things, such as, you know, uh, safety at intersections or, you know, things that are a little bit more location-specific or, or the, where there's a greater toolbox of solutions. I think when it comes to the weather, as well as some other, some other situations, it's more about understanding that when collisions occur, we just want to minimize the severity of them. And one way of doing that is to, you know, help ensure that speeds are low. So that's why there's a lot of movement towards looking at speed limits uh, that um, you know, are set by road authorities that really reflect one's ability to survive a crash. Uh, so, for example, uh, a side impact collision is generally much more difficult to survive at speeds of more than 50 kilometers an hour. Um, pedestrian hits are much more difficult to survive when it's anything over 30 kilometers an hour, which is why you see a lot of uh, uh, you know um, uh, new areas that are posted at 30 for uh, pedestrian safety mm-hmm. uh, in residential areas. So, so that's sort of the approach that can can help in all weather conditions, but that includes uh, weather conditions where speed, um, you know, combined with the weather could result in people losing control. And um, and then the other sort of way of accommodating, you know, things that, that go wrong is by, uh, because in, a, in weather you tend to lose control, you may end up going off the road, is just to make sure those roadsides are safe. So the, that the, uh, the the side slopes are not too steep. Make sure there's no major, you know, kind of fixed objects like utilities uh, or that they're in a breakaway base that they would break away if they were collided with um, um, just to reduce the severity of um, or, or, or roadside or median barriers as well uh, to avoid head-on collisions or to avoid uh, uh, going off of the road. So there, there, is, there is a solution set that works for various conditions, including weather, and that I think really is... Um, you know, a big part of, of how we can help manage uh, the impacts uh, on road safety and uh, in poor weather conditions. Well, Raheem Delgier, thank you so much for taking the time on a Friday night. Uh, I'm glad you avoided the snow on Tuesday, but thanks for all your insight into this. <laughs> okay, my pleasure. Well, five years ago tonight, Ryan Stuka was settling into a new job and a new adventure at the Sun Peaks Resort about 45 minutes northwest of Kamloops here in B.C., Uh, The 20-year-old from Beaumont, Alberta, near Edmonton, had set out with a close friend and planned to enjoy a winter working and snowboarding at really one of Canada's most beautiful ski resorts. And all was going according to plan. He was in contact with his parents. He was having a good time until the early morning hours of Saturday, February the 18th, 2018. Ryan left a house party 
at about 2 a.m., uh, just a short walk from where he was living, and was never seen again. He seemed to vanish into thin air. And it wasn't until later that day, after he hadn't shown up for work, which was highly unusual for what was a very conscientious young man, that the alarm was sounded and the search for Ryan began. And that search continues to this day. A year after his disappearance, RCMP issued this plea for information. Somebody knows something. We need people to come forward and whatever tips, information, we do need you to step up and, uh, and do what you can to help, help contribute to this investigation. And yet, there's not been a breakthrough. Now, Ryan's parents, Heather and Scott, made that first long drive from Edmonton soon after their son went missing, joining what turned into an extensive and exhausted effort to try to figure out what could have happened to their son and brother to their daughters. It is a journey they've made many times since. There have been new searches, social media awareness campaigns, billboards, a documentary, and still no answers. No matter what it is, and um, we, uh, we miss Ryan a lot. I want to bring him home. Even if it's our end of our days, we'll persevere until we find him. Now, Heather Stuka has been a real advocate for this. As you know, in missing persons cases, they do have a way sometimes of fading away unless someone champions the ongoing search. And that certainly has been what Ryan's mom has been doing uh, for many years now. She'd written extensively about it, posted those online, and then decided to put those all down on paper, so to speak, gather all those thoughts in a book uh, called Missing From Me, which is out now, a story about a sudden disappearance and the long and difficult journey that's followed for Ryan's family. And Heather joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The, um, I guess I was just thinking that it, it was, you know, December the 1st was five years ago yesterday, wasn't it? And, uh, yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, what made you decide to put it all down on paper? It was, it was, it's, uh, it's interesting because it is both a story about a, tri- it's both a tribute a- a- and, and, and sort of a confessional as well in many ways, isn't it? I think, yeah. And I think that's exactly why um, it, I made the decision to sort of put pen to paper. I think I always knew that I wanted uh, Ryan's story to stay long after Scott and I were on this earth and that some time in some future, someone would sit down and they would know how much Ryan is loved and matters and and to understand our story and, and what we went through through this. Uh, well, uh, right now, our journey hasn't ended. Yeah. Tell me about about Ryan. Cause, you know, I, I've seen the documentaries that were made and heard about him. But uh, yeah, I mean, so many people from all across this country set out on adventures like that when they're his age, don't they? Absolutely. And I'd have to say that Ryan was pretty introspective. You know, he, he had the same group of friends since really he was a grade one when we moved from Edmonton to the smaller town of Beaumont, which is not so, so far outside the city. But he had the same group of friends. You know, he was comfortable being at home. He wasn't adventurous, uh, so to speak. At the time, I worked for an airline, and I used to encourage him to spread his wings and maybe travel some, and, and that wasn't anything he was interested in. And so for me, it was, um, it, you know, I was surprised when he said that he was thinking about uh, going to a ski resort and working for a season. And I thought, this is this is great, you know, a chance to to really develop, to, to grow, to see where you're where you're at to have a little bit of adventure while you're so young. And, and so, you know, my husband Scott and I really sort of encouraged him to, to follow that dream. And, and so, 
you know, not not an adventurous type, loyal and funny. And, you know, of course, I, I tell everyone he was so handsome, but, um, you know, just a, a really athletic and, and all around, you know, probably very normal um, young man. And he was having a great time, I gather. I know that... Um... I guess he didn't come home for Christmas that year. I mean, he was really enjoying his his first sort of taste of, I don't want to call it adult life, but that first taste of freedom you get when you're that age. Absolutely. You know, he talked to my husband several times uh, uh, during the week, and, you know, he he'd bragged to, to Scott that he was on 36 days straight of, of snowboarding. I think he, he loved that. I think that, you know, sort of to go a little bit outside your shell. Although, you know, having said that, he really still didn't venture out much when, when he was there. He hung out at home or he hung out with his roommates or with his close friends that he had met there. But he wasn't one that, uh, you know, was out and completely uh, get outside of his comfort zone. He still remained pretty much uh, true to, to his personality that he exhibited here in town. So I gather that's why I, I get the impression, just from having listened to other interviews that you've done, that you knew almost instantly. Your, your husband certainly talks about having known instantly that something was wrong. Absolutely. The moment we got the text, and it sort of came as a surprise. I, you know, I'm reading the the words, and I can't quite form form them and and explain to my husband exactly what's going on, and then to have. That and, you're, and in that moment, I, we just knew. We knew it wasn't going to be anything uh, good. We knew that, you know, you, you want to believe all of the, the hopes and dreams. Or, or maybe he's just went somewhere else. Maybe his phone is dead. Maybe he was spent too much time partying. Maybe he's holed up. Maybe he's embarrassed. Maybe he didn't show up for work. And uh, we knew that wasn't true. But, you know, you're so desperate to cling on to any little bit of hope that you will believe, I think, things so far outside of, of what normally would would occur just to make that happen. And I imagine given the size of the community he was in, given how everyone knew each other, I imagine even the authorities were telling you, we're going to figure this out. Like, we're going to know what happened sooner than later. And I, I think it went for, for very much uh, the longest time that, you know, they just assumed that he was missing. Now, I do know that they had started to, the uh, law enforcement had started sort of a parallel case in case he wasn't a missing person so they wouldn't have to backtrack and get information again. But very much in the beginning, it was treated uh, like just a missing person and that we would find the answers, which I think is is interesting because within that same breath, you know, they were telling us the first night after our um, they came after searching all day is that, you know, on your way out of town in the day or the day after, stop by the detachment and we'll tell you what our next steps were. And I just thought, you know, like, how could any parent leave? How could, how could they leave? We haven't found him. I just, I, I and that always confused me, I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I guess as, as you pointed out many times, there's absolutely nothing that prepares you for this, right? There's no right or wrong way to approach it, to, to think about it, to deal with the plate. There is no guidebook, right? There is absolutely no guidebook and there's an inconsistency across the board on how how these sort of cases are handled, depending on what district or area that you find yourself in, depending on, I suppose, um, what uh, law enforcement that you would report to, depends on the circumstances. You know, there's so many things, and yet there is no guidebook. There's nothing to tell you. And I think people get this mistaken impression that it's like what you would read in a, a book or see on TV or in a movie about how things progress, and there's 
nothing further from the truth. You're left on your own. Now, however long you have um, search and rescue will, will vary. But eventually, all official channels will have to go home. Yeah, I mean, you had such an outpouring of volunteers coming from all over the place to come and help. But uh, but yeah, I imagine from officially, if there's no news, there's just no news, right? And that leaves you sitting there wondering when the phone will ring. That's right. And that wasn't something that we were prepared to do. So we thought if, if there was no help to be given to us, we would have to create it. And so we did. We started from scratch. And, and I think that was the most frustrating thing, because then you learn after a month that, you know, everything we had done the, the previous time was not done correctly because we're not experts in it. We don't right. have any knowledge. And so you always feel like you're behind the eight ball. You're always trying to catch up. And and for us, it was imperative. It was so important for us to, to do this before the snow melted to give that chance. Now, we knew within the first couple of, well, within the first day or so that it was not going to be rescue it was going to be recovery but at the end of the day ryan still matters he still deserves to come home yeah and you deserve as a family to know absolutely do you feel like you're any closer to that at all i I guess i guess time just does it speed up after a while does it does it go by faster i i can't imagine it's it's, that's a paradoxical question to be honest It feels like five years has gone by in a blink of an eye, and yet a lifetime has passed. Uh, and we've learned so much, but, you know, I feel like perhaps we're further away now than we were before, because as time goes by, whatever um, evidence or things that we'll find of Ryan is now buried under five years of deadfall and brush. And, you know, the items that you think that you're going to find are scattered um, and and decimated, um, and so you know, I think as the years go by, there's there's less and less hope that we're going to be able to find the things that we need to do to have that closure. Heather Stuka is with us this half hour from Beaumont, Alberta. She's written a book called "Missing from Me," which is proving very popular. It's a very Sad story. It's a long ordeal for her and her family. Their son, Ryan, went missing back in 2018 in February. He's not been seen since. And this book details a lot of that journey for the family. Uh, the the drive just to carry on, I guess, uh, Heather, really, and, and try to do all you can. I mean, you've been tireless for five years now. I've just been looking at all the different campaigns that were launched and so forth. Um, when you wrote this book, I guess this was part of that effort too, to try to tell people what it was like. And what did you, what did you hope that people would get from it? I think that, I mean, that was two part. It was, it was cathartic to be able to put it down all my thoughts, um, to expand on some of the things that, you know, we were going through. I think it was also part and piece to, um, to bring awareness, not only to Ryan's case, but also, um, to other missing people and the way that, that, that they're viewed. And then I think for me, it was um, the opportunity to um, express some of the things that we were going through, the memories that we were going through. Um, and hopefully people will find a piece that resonates with them. That there'll be something if they're going through similar tragedy or a tragedy of their own, how we processed some of those feelings. Yeah, how, how, because you have a you know you have you have kids you have a family you have I'm sure you have lives how does one continue to live with this uh, I, I I imagine it must like be it must be as if everything is on pause and yet life goes on 
Right. And we do have two daughters at home. One is 17. The other one is 22. And, and, you know, their lives have been changed by this event. But, you know, Scott and I decided early on to, to make that pack that, you know, we weren't going to add more to that by sort of falling apart and, and not sharing and, and finding a way to thrive so that we could participate and be present with the girls. And so, Yes, we continue with the searches because for, for us, that's the last physical thing that we can do for our son. Um, and it helps us live in the in-between times. So when we go up and search and we know that we've done something, that we know that we're bringing awareness, we know that we're connecting, um, being up in the community, then when we come home, it's easier to transition back and be present with those girls so that they can have the opportunity to live without fear without um, guilt, without grief in the same way. And you've stayed together too. I know that this can often be really destructive for couples, these sorts of traumas in a family, and yet you seem to have stuck together and been each other's pillars. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, certainly we've been we've been married for twenty seven years and yeah. and so you know, being married uh younger, you know, you, you think you see all sides of your spouse. I, I think you think all the, the mystery is gone. There's not a lot of changes that will happen. And I still remember, I think my eyes were opened wide when uh, we were up in Sun Peaks and I saw Scott get up every single morning and put on his, um, you know, his uh, snowsuit and all of his gear. And he went out every single day to search, didn't matter what the, the weather was, and then still come home and manage to have that open heart and gentleness, not only to us and the girls, but to every volunteer that came by. And I think you just see somebody in a different light. And so, again, we were we were fortunate enough to sort of um, move together through our grief rather than have it separate us. Yeah. What would you like people to know now about about uh, about you, your family, and about Ryan five years later? You know, I sometimes I think about the memories that we have, and I I almost feel like now I'm an archaeologist digging for whatever little bits and pieces that I can glean from somebody that may have known him, that may not have come forward to let us know, you know, just little tidbits of his personality or things that he said or things that he he did. Because I feel like as five years goes by, you know, our lives have gone on, and they've gone on without Ryan and with Ryan, but you know, where he would have been, there's that bittersweet, you know, where would he be at 25, almost 26? What would he be doing? What would his interests be? What would he look like? And so, you know, I I look for those things. And then we also try to find a way to transition into what people will consider a new normal. And for us, it still always feels like Groundhog Day. And so maybe we're better at that new normal, uh, but I'm not sure we're quite there yet. And I guess it matters one day. Do you still hold hold out hope that perhaps one day those answers will be delivered? I'd like to. I think, you know, and it, that's an interesting thing because, you know, people will, will come up and talk about um, hope and they will talk about you still need to hope that, you know, Ryan's still out there. And and I, I do, I suppose, as his mother, want to believe that, you know, there's some place somewhere that he could be safe and, and still not being able to come home. But I doubt very much that that will be the case, but I hope someday that we will have some answers so that we'll have some form of closure. Well, Heather uh, Stuka, thank you so much for sharing your story tonight. Uh, the book is called Missing From Me, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for being so candid as well. I appreciate it.
Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. 